and uh, welcome back uh, Mr. Brent McGuire and Mr. Mark Lynch. If anyone's out in the hallway, there are multiple empty seats in here, so you can, if, if you prefer, you can come in. Oh, okay, all right. Um, all right, so um, last time we talked a lot about the background to Luther, but we, we didn't really talk very much at all about Luther himself. And so what we're going to do tonight is get into the meat of Luther himself. First of all, his life, his circumstances, his career as a monk, as a priest, as a theologian, as a reformer, as a revolutionary within Christianity. And then once I, I kind of paint a, you know, a superficial enough background in that regard, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague who's going to get into the real details of Luther's philosophy and the way in which Luther's philosophy actually undergirds and almost necessitates some of his theological conclusions. Right, so that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, so Luther's biography is principally what's going to occupy myself. And, and I apologize to those who are very familiar with the details of Luther's life, because what you're going to hear is, what you're going to hear is maybe a, a 20 to 25 minute version of Luther's life. And so I apologize for any omissions or details that are left out. But in any event, the date of Luther's birth is 1483. Right, so as we talked about last time, Luther is born at a time which it's already a time of tremendous upheaval and change in the most important aspects of European society. It's a time of religious change. It's a time of institutional change. It's a time of change in the universities and education. And so it's a time of very rapid change across the board when Luther is born, even technological change. Those of you who are familiar with the, the history of technology, you'll know Luther was born right around the time that the printing press is first becoming widespread across Western Europe. Um, Luther's childhood, however, uh, appears to have been very influential over you know, what he would later become. You know, in a real sense, we've talked about kind of the on a macro level what made Luther who he was. On a macro level, the changes that Europe and European society were experiencing leading up to the 15th century. But very much on a micro level, Luther in his childhood, in his home life, in his upbringing as a young boy, received what some would say are the scars that led him to his future struggles as an adult. Now, you know, Luther's childhood is a highly debated, highly disputed topic within historiography on the Reformation. And the reason why that is is because there's so much contradictory evidence about Luther's childhood. And much of the contradictory evidence comes from Luther himself. Uh, much of it comes from Luther's earliest biographers in the 16th century, some of whom were his partisans, some of whom were his detractors. But in any, from, from all accounts, and especially from Luther himself, the picture that we get is that his childhood was, in fact, a very difficult one. And, and that's understating it. Right? Luther mentions, in fact, that his childhood was nothing short of a hell, really. He was um, beaten on a regular basis, he tells us, both by his father and by his mother. Right? Both of his parents were given to these unpredictable outbursts of rage. Right? And, and Luther himself writes about this later in life as having had a profound influence on who he was psychologically. Uh, his father seems to have been a man much given to perfectionism. Right? His fa Luther's father really wanted Luther, who was his eldest son, to receive an education, to make something of himself in the world. So we get this picture that, if we want to present it in a balanced way, Luther's father may have been a tyrant, may have been abusive. Uh, we're told for, for some of the most trivial offenses, Luther was, was beaten even to the point where he was bleeding. Right? And sometimes this was even by his mother. And you can imagine the effect that that would have had. 
But on the other hand, Luther's father also had high expectations and high standards for Luther. And so he tried to get him the best education available. Beginning in his teenage years, beginning in 1497, Luther was sent to a variety of schools where he was expected to learn Latin and to learn the liberal arts, the trivium and the quadrivium, and thus to kind of prepare himself for a career as a lawyer. This was his great hope that the son could be kind of driven to pursue excellence in his education and then put that to good use as a professional in the law. However, Luther, from a very early age, um, according to himself, he, he began to display some of the scars of this very difficult upbringing that he had in that perhaps due to his father's perfectionism, perhaps due to the emotional difficulties that were engendered by an abusive childhood, Luther himself tells us that even as a teenager, he had a desire for certainty that was not satisfied by studying the law. Right? Because when you study the law, um, and this was especially true at a time when humanism was prevalent, when you study the law, all is not certain. There are multiple conflicting opinions about every legal question. Right? It's a matter of establishing precedence. Anyone in the room who's an attorney can relate to this. You can be asked to, in law school, you can be asked to write a brief on one side, or you can be asked to write a brief on the other side. But what's right? What's true? What's the answer? Well, it's not always entirely clear. Right? And Luther's desire for certainty wasn't really satisfied by his legal studies, he tells us. So he was drawn away from the law and towards things that gave him what he felt was a greater level of certainty, namely the study of philosophy and theology. Now, Luther was studying at a university, uh, which is called the, the University of Erfurt. And there were a couple of the, the preeminent scholars in the German world who were present at the University of Erfurt and were able to mentor Martin Luther. One of them was named Bartholomew Arnold. Uh, that's kind of the anglicized version of his name. But Bartholomew Arnold was one of the greatest uh, and most prolific writers in philosophy in this late part of the 15th century. Bartholomew Arnold was a, a colleague at Erfurt of another fellow with a really priceless name, Jonigus Trotfeder. <laughs> when I was an undergraduate, a um, group of my friends and I were studying up at 4 o'clock in the morning, studying for a history exam. And we all agreed that the following day we would put the name Jodicus Trotfeder into our essays somewhere. Jodicus Trotfeder von Eisenach was one of the greatest theologians of the time. And the two of them mentored Luther in his philosophical formation, which consisted in, in a large part studying the works of Aristotle and the works of William of Ockham which were mentioned last time by my colleague. So in other words, Luther's training, insofar as it was scholastic, Luther's training was nominalistic. Right? That is to say, insofar as Luther's training was scholastic, Luther's training, um, on some level, denied the ability to know the natures of things. Or at least he was in, in, inculcated in a philosophical system that didn't attempt to know the natures of things, primarily. This is going to have a big impact on him later on. Uh, in any event, even the study of philosophy and theology began to be dissatisfying to Luther. Uh, after receiving his master's degree in 1505, very young, 22 years old, he receives his master's degree from the University of Erfurt, and then suddenly, inexplicably, he made a decision that would influence the rest of his life. He entered a monastery 
to the shock of his family and his friends. Now, why did Luther enter the monastery? Right, this is another one of these questions about Luther's life, kind of like the nature of his childhood and, and how do you psychoanalyze his childhood. This, this question of why does Luther suddenly just go, he ups and enters the monastery without warning, without, without any kind of indication earlier in his life that he was inclined in that direction. Why would he do something like this? This is a decision that puzzled his family, it's a decision that puzzled his friends, and it's a decision that on some level, Luther himself wasn't happy with. Yet why did he feel compelled to do it? Well, it's, it's once again, it's a puzzling historical question because Luther himself gives contradictory statements about his motive for entering the monastery. Throughout his life, as his life progressed, Luther leaves behind very different accounts of what his state of mind was at the time and why he entered and all of that. And similarly, his early biographers contradict one another when they're talking about why Luther would have entered the monastery. But they all agree on one thing, and that is that Luther felt some kind of internal compulsion to become a monk. Now, there's one version of the story which holds that Luther was actually on horseback riding along the road outside of Erfurt when suddenly a bolt of lightning struck the ground right near his horse. It actually spooked his horse. The horse threw him off. And as he fell off the horse, Luther, in a state of fright and profound fear, made a sudden vow to St. Anne. Uh, he vowed to St. Anne, St. Anne, I promise I'll become a monk, he swore. <laughs> Then afterwards, when he had recovered his wits, suddenly said to himself, oh no, I just made a vow. <laughs> wow, now I'm bound by that. Now, now I'm stuck. Now there's nothing I can do. Now I have to be a monk. Now, there are other versions of this, this story of the, the vow that, that he makes kind of impulsively. And there's another story that one of Luther's friends at the university was killed in a bar fight. And, and that that's what somehow compelled him to make this vow, that, that his friend was involved in a bar fight, got stabbed, and Luther decided, you know what, university life is not for me anymore. This university, it's a whorehouse and a winehouse, and I'm, I'm done with it. So he took a vow to become a monk, and of course, when he had recollected himself, and maybe sobered up, I don't know, <laughs> repented of the vow, but felt that there was nothing he could do about it. And once again, felt compelled to honor this vow that he had taken in some kind of a state of, of psychological compulsion. And so be that as it may, there are plenty of contradictory stories about this. But the, the different stories all agree on one thing, and that is that he entered the monastery because he felt compelled to do so uh, by a vow that he had taken. Right? And once again, in some kind of scrupulous way, um, decided that he had to commit his life uh, to this monastic vocation, despite the lack of any apparent call from God or, or any, any apparent evidence earlier in his life that he was predisposed towards the monastic life. You know, it, it's a bizarre story. Supposedly, the, um, the day that Luther actually entered the monastery, he had one last big party with all of his friends. Uh, he invited all of his buddies over, all of the cute girls that he had dated in college. They all came over, guys and girls, they had this big party. And then they all walked Luther down to the gate of the monastery. And then they opened the gate. Luther went in the black cloister at Erfurt. They closed the, the monastery gate. And then Luther was inside. He waved goodbye to his friends. And that was it. He was you stuck. You want to show He was doing it. Yeah. Um, so, in any event, that, that it's one of those episodes in Luther's life that has a profound impact on him. Luther's father, for all his faults, seems to have had the insight to realize this is not the kind of thing that's going to give Luther a fulfilling or a satisfying or a well-balanced life. Uh, in any event, um, Luther's life as a monk is filled with evidence for us of his problems on the micro level 
and the problems kind of on the macro level with the church in the West in this period in the early 16th century. For example, Luther was ordained to the priesthood in 1507. Two years in the, in the monastery and he's ordained to the priesthood. Now, yeah, everyone's kind of gasping. That's a problem, isn't it? This is the kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that gives rise to the reforms of Trent later in the 16th century. This is one of the reasons why the Council of Trent has to completely overhaul priestly formation in the Catholic Church, because because of things like this, there was no regular course of study and discernment for ordination to the priesthood. They simply said, okay, you're a monk. Hey, you already have the philosophical formation. You've already studied at a university. You already have a degree. You want to be a priest? Sure. And they ordained him. Now, once again, there are all kinds of stories about uh, Luther's um, career as a priest, especially in, in his early years, there's some kind of confusion about the dating of Luther's first mass. For years, in the primary source documentation, the date of Luther's first mass was placed on the same day as his ordination date. Now, that's impossible, right? which has led some scholars to speculate. Maybe what it means is that his first mass was on the, the one-year anniversary of his ordination date. In which case, you know, some scholars have speculated, oh, this is further evidence of the man's scrupulosity or something like that. But it, it's really, the evidence is not conclusive on this point. But his, his ordination with the priesthood is something that gives rise to you know, a very troubled priestly career. That much is very clear. Um, Luther's career between 1507 and 1512 uh, is one in which Luther himself talks about how during these years, he felt that God could not have been more distant from him. He said that God was no longer the, the master, uh, the loving master of my soul. God had become the slave driver of my soul. Somehow there was something deeply wrong with Luther's relationship with God in this period by his own account. Now, it's in this period between 1507 and 1512, somewhere in there, that supposedly Luther made a trip to Rome. It may have been in 1509, it may have been in, in the year 1510. Somewhere in there, Luther supposedly made a pilgrimage to Rome. And now this is something that Luther's Protestant biographers, later in the 16th and in the 17th centuries, will bring up. And they will say, this is the seed of the Reformation, that Luther went to Rome as a young man and he saw all the corruption in Rome, and he saw the wickedness of the clerics in Rome. And this is what led him to begin doubting the Catholic Church. In fact, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. In, in Luther's earliest polemics, in Luther's earliest debates, in Luther's earliest writings, in which he's assailing the Catholic Church with every charge imaginable, he never makes mention of having witnessed corruption or anything on his visit to Rome. So the, the majority of scholars today, even Protestant scholars today, hold that there's no evidence that his visit to Rome played any real role in influencing his attitude towards the church. Um, but be that as it may, by 1512, Luther was back in Germany, and it's in this year, 1512, that he was awarded his PhD. He was actually awarded his PhD in scriptural studies, and he was appointed to teach scripture at the University of Wittenberg. Which year did he get his PhD? Which year did he get? Oh, 1512. So, Wittenberg was... Um, it was a brand new university. 
in the early 16th century. It's a relatively small university in a small town, kind of like Prison of College or something like that. <laughs> Wittenberg, Wittenberg. W-I-T-T-E-N-B-U-R-G. Um, very, very small university in a small town. And so for whatever reason, Luther's religious order, which I failed to mention. Anyone know what was his religious order? Augustinian. Yeah, he's an Augustinian, so everyone knows that. He, he's an Augustinian. Luther's religious order felt like it would be a good idea, since he was teaching theology at, at Wittenberg, that it would be a good idea to saddle him with more responsibilities. You know, that teaching theology at Wittenberg really wasn't enough to be busy. And so they began to saddle him with other responsibilities. They made him an important administrator of the Augustinian order to the point where uh, Luther had to have two secretaries and be kind of dictating multiple letters at the same time to his different secretaries and that sort of thing, traveling around, visiting priories and monasteries, doing canonical visitations, going on errands for his superiors, as, as well as trying to prepare his lectures and, and lecture on the Bible at the university level, and at the same time, fulfill his own spiritual responsibilities as a monk, as a canon regular, as a member of a religious order. Right? Now, there's no way that any man can juggle all of these things. And so what starts to fall by the wayside for Luther in this period? His own spiritual responsibilities. Right? And so it's in these years, after 1512, after 1512, that we, we have evidence from Luther's writings and from other people's writings that, in fact, these are the years in which Luther begins to develop his seriously morbid scrupulosity. Now, Luther's scrupulosity was of a very curious kind. He, he would become overwrought with grief at the slightest infraction of the rules on some trivial point, and he would begin to think that, that God would cast him out forever from among the elect because of the slightest infraction of a rule. that This is deeply written into Luther's psyche in this period. It's a personal problem that he has. But on the other hand, because of all of his responsibilities, he would suddenly find himself committing grave infractions against the rules. Right? For example, he would find himself neglecting the divine office for weeks at a time. Then, in a fit of black remorse and despair, he would lock himself in his cell and recite, you know, two weeks worth of divine office to catch himself up, <laughs> as though that makes a difference. And so the man is, is seriously on a downward spiral in these years, spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally. Right? And, and that much is clear from his writings. Now, you can imagine, in this state of psychological strain and degeneration, when he's despairing of his ability to please God, when he's despairing of his ability to do anything that God will find pleasing, you can, you can understand why Luther will come to question whether it is important to do things that are pleasing to God, or even whether theologically our salvation has anything to do with whether we act in the way that's pleasing to God. Right? It seems to be in, this, in these years that Luther begins to formulate his theology of justification. Now, when I say justification, justification, um, justification is a term that you don't find used very often in traditional Catholic theology. Justification is not something that Catholic theologians are usually particularly concerned about. But it's a word that Luther seizes on from Scripture when he reads in Scripture about what it means to be justified by faith. Now, 
What Luther, in fact, does, and this is, it's kind of a complex thing, is he starts to use the word justification with a technical meaning that is entirely novel and innovative. And that is to say, what Luther comes to, what he decides, basically, principally due to his own interior struggles, is that justification is a declaration by God that you are justified, rather than an interior change in your soul. So in other words, when God says you are justified, what that means is, in a legal, technical sense, God has decided to treat you as though you are pleasing to him, as though you are justified, even though in no real sense can your soul ever be anything else than a sink of corruption. It's a, it's a very strange kind of manipulation of this term, justification, but it becomes essential to Luther's theology. In fact, justification is something for Luther that comes completely from without. It's not something that really does anything inside the soul. So, in any event, Luther's struggles through all of these years culminate in the year 1517. In 1517, Luther took the decisive step of nailing uh, on the church door at the, at the University of Wittenberg, kind of a, a summary of his theological opinions. And we call this the 95 Theses. The 95 Theses were the beginning of Luther's firm break from the Catholic Church. Right? When, when we say theses, uh, thesis is a technical term. Right? A thesis is something that you're proposing for debate. Right, in, a, in an academic setting, in a university setting. So what Luther was doing with these 95 theses was in his university setting at Wittenberg, he was saying publicly, I will defend these 95 statements right, against anyone who argues against them. And if you go through the 95 statements, what you'll find is that many of them have to do with this idea of justification. But many of them also relate to this issue of indulgences. Now, an indulgence, theologically, we all know what it is. It's, uh, an indulgence is um, something, it's based on the principle that the church has the authority to remit the temporal punishment due to sin. Right? And in, the notion of an indulgence is predicated on, on some notion of church authority. Right? What Luther does is, because the indulgence is predicated on this notion that by the church's authority, somehow, your soul can be can have a punishment that's due to it remitted in the eyes of God. Luther finds that to be absolutely unacceptable, and the idea of indulgences become a rallying point for Luther. He rejects indulgences. He ends up rejecting wholesale the authority of the church when it comes to the sacraments, when it comes to priestly ordination, and when it comes to jurisdictional issues. And there are all sorts of complexities here that we don't have time to get into because I'm going to uh, wrap this up in a second. So to make a long story short, Luther's personal struggles right, are very much influential in him coming to this realization in his own mind that there is no possible way that you can be pleasing to God or that you can do anything that's pleasing to God. And once he comes to that, that realization in his own mind that there's nothing you can do that's pleasing to God at all, ever, uh, it gives rise to a host of philosophical and theological implications in a whole variety of things, some of which my colleague is going to talk about next. So I'm going to have to get away now. We'll have a, a three-minute break for, for people to get a drink and some food, uh, and then Professor Walsh is going to talk. So thank you.
counterfeit. I seem to find in my own experience that I'm free. But also God reveals that man is, is given freedom, okay, as part of his nature. Also, philosophy tries to demonstrate God's existence, that the immortality of the soul, and these are topics that also theology reveals. Okay? But yet there are things called the articles of faith. Okay, ultimately, the articles of faith. That are called the articles of faith precisely because they cannot be known by reason alone. Okay. These are truths of faith that can in no way be demonstrated through an analysis of our, our world and just looking out at the birds and the trees, myself, my friends, my, the cars, etc. It doesn't give us a clear idea that God is three persons in one God. Okay. And that, that Jesus Christ is both true God and true man. And so Thomas would hold that there are articles of our faith that build upon what we know naturally. Okay? In no way are they contradictory, but simply build upon a foundation of reason. In some ways you can liken this, the relationship between philosophy and theology, to the relationship between soil and a plant that grows and thrives. You need good soil so that the seed of revelation can flourish. Okay? And as grace builds on nature, so too does revealed truth build upon natural truth. Okay? Now the point I'm making, and how it relates to a discussion of, of the Protestant Reformation, is as follows. And this is a point I made last time, and this point I'll make this well today. That if one... Okay makes certain conclusions philosophical. They can prohibit us from coming to accurate theological conclusions. Okay. Our philosophical presuppositions okay, could prevent us from coming to proper theological conclusions if they are of a certain nature. And I'm going to make the point that, that this is the case with Luther. And so not only does bad philosophy undermine good theology, but I'm also going to hold okay, that having divorced them, as, 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 as happens today, and, and it is precipitated by events uh, that preceded it that I might well, I'll refer to in a minute, not only does having a bad philosophy mess with your theology, but it also leads you to deny theology altogether. And how is that? And let me just anticipate something I'm going to bring up later in the lecture. Let's say I can account for a good action I performed by simply saying, I chose it. I chose to do a good thing. Seems simple enough. Why do we need God? How is God necessary? How is God related to our choice of a good action? <clears throat> it seems like it can be explained apart from God. However, Luther's going to hold that the only explanation is that God does the choosing. God wills it. 
Okay, the human is not a sufficient explanation for his own actions. But God is the creator of the world. He predestines and is involved providentially in everything that happens. Therefore, God in some ways brings about everything that happens. Okay, and in some ways that sounds familiar. So how can I affirm that both God is involved and man is involved? Or do I have to choose? And what happened, and for reasons I, I ultimately think are philosophical, philosophical, that is the choice that modern man has been faced with. To either deny God in favor of man, or to deny man in favor of God. As Luther himself attests, man is nothing but a beast of burden okay, that is pulled to and fro by God and the devil. He doesn't do anything himself, but is simply a pawn in this, in this, this, this power play between God and Satan. We reconcile this, and this is what I'm going to look at in our lecture. But, but first, I want to clear up one thing I, I said last time, just to, to make sense of what we talked about, and maybe related a little bit to Mr. McGuire's lecture, because the second part of my discussion is, is a topic that will take us into the, the part of my last lecture. Okay, and this is uh, again a, a cursory summary of what we discussed last time. Now, again, I'm going to show you how certain philosophical errors ultimately can lead to a separation of faith and reason, and ultimately to a possible rejection of the faith itself. Okay, and this, so, 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 let's, let's, so let's look at this now. Now the issue has to come, it comes down to, the philosophical issue that it comes down to, is the possibility of man to know universal, to have universal knowledge. Now what do I mean by universal knowledge? What I mean by universal knowledge is not simply knowledge of particulars. I see many men, women, many tables. But it seems like I don't just know tables. I know the nature of a table. I know what a table is, not just this table or that table. Also, I don't know just Garfield and Heathcliff. I know what a cat is. Okay, and so these terms, which are expressed often as common nouns, okay, like cat, as opposed to Garfield, which signifies an individual, we have a cat that signifies a species, a kind of thing. Now, through the history of philosophy, people have given different explanations for how we come to know species. Now, why is it problematic? Well, partially because of this. When is the last time you saw cat? When is the last time you saw dog running around? When is the last time you saw table? Okay, we've never seen these universals, right? But it seems like we come to know them through our particulars, possibly. Or how else can this be explained? Okay, now to go into more background, I was encouraged by Sabatino here. Plato had an interesting theory. He held that man okay, existed in a world of the forms. And the forms are cat, dog, wisdom, all of these universal terms. 
and that man had a clear vision of this. Now, when he descended into a body, he forgot them all. And therefore, what is learning? Learning is remembering what we once knew when we were united and were able to see these forms clearly. So when I see an individual cat, I'm able to call it a cat and to predicate or speak of this word in terms to multiple felines. I have no idea. Might as well draw one. <laughs> Students love when I draw cats. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah okay. Yeah, that's that's, that's a category thing. Uh, any anyone gets major extra credit. And I, I even borrowed this from from a professor. Even the name, I just wanted to prop, uh, continue the, the the legacy of this cat. Uh, Mafeo, does anyone know the name? Mafeo, Mafeo. Uh, of course, this is the, 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 the given name of Urban VI, Pope Urban VI, the fatal of Urban there's no fatal, right? Now, we also have a different cat, you know, of uh, some kind of evil nature. Urgh, you know, this wicked cat over here, you know, it's a different cat. Okay, but how do we know the nature of cat? It was Plato would held that we know it because we saw the forms directly. Okay, we know the nature of man and can identify individual things as men because we had this knowledge of the nature of man that allows us to see forms that participate in that nature, that are like it. Okay. Now, this is a theory of absolute realism. Okay, so we have a realism. Okay, and this deals with man and his possibility to know universal. Okay, this is a kind of realism. Universals actually exist. Cat actually exists, not in this world, but in the world of forms that we were able to view before our descent into the body. Okay? Now there's another theory, and this is kind of advocated by Aristotle and also by St. Thomas, called a moderate realism. Okay? And what, what is the basis of this theory? Okay? He says... Scrap the whole world of forms. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to anyone. All our knowledge begins in experience. I wasn't born with all this knowledge I had before, but all my knowledge in some ways can be traced to my experience. And therefore, in our experience, and it gets complicated from here, but I'm going to give the basic version. In our experience of men, we are able to abstract what is common about them. And so basically, universals don't exist, only particulars exist, but the mind has an ability to focus on what is common in particulars. And when it focuses on it in isolation, we have universal knowledge. I'll give you an example. Okay? We have a tire of our car. I have no previous knowledge of, 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 of circularity. Okay? But looking at the tire, I abstract from the nature of this tire as a black rubber Michelin tire. And I simply focus on what is common about that. And our, our, our minds were able to do this. And we're able to focus on the nature of a circle, an abstraction from the particular tire. And we do this all the time. And in fact, our greatest knowledge is always universal knowledge. We don't just know the government, the situation of, of the governance of, of, of ancient Rome. But we can think about what is the nature of the best possible government, which might never have existed, but we can focus on things in abstraction. 
And thus, we come to know human nature through individual human beings. Okay? But now, what is another theory? Another theory is this nominalism that is required. And Gregory Beale is another name of a teacher of Martin Luther that advocated this position. Okay, and, and, and on his bedside, at, at his deathbed, Martin Luther could recite verbatim lectures or portions of lectures of his great nominalist teacher. Now, what do they affirm? They will hold that all that exists are particular things. Therefore, we can't have any universal knowledge. It's impossible. Okay, and so the name cat isn't a shared nature that things have. <coughs> But all it is is a term that we give to help us live better. To say, okay, these things are similar enough, therefore we'll call them the same thing. But in other words, there is no universal nature of man or of cats in general that they all share in. But all that exists are particulars. Now this is a philosophical conclusion. Now how does it affect his theology? How does it affect... Uh, what he has to say about the topic we talked about last time. And I'm going to try to relate this even to something uh, Mr. Rewired just mentioned. Okay. How does this relate? Well, if I can't know the nature of man, okay, how can there isn't any natural law? If you can't come to know the nature of all men, how can you come to knowledge of how all men ought to behave? Okay? And that's very important. Okay? So if we can't come to the knowledge of human nature that we all share in, how can we observe actions that are disordered in relationship to that nature if we can't even understand what man is? But all we can know are particulars. Therefore, there is no ethics for him that is not from God. There's no ability to look out at the natures of things and to see that this action is disordered in relationship to my nature. That murder is wrong because of it, it's a violation in some ways of how I and you have been made. And he will affirm that all of our morality comes from God. And God doesn't will things because they're good. Things are good because God wills them. Okay? And he gives a supereminent place to God's will. And says that God could will even contradictory things. Okay? Or, or, or no, not contradictions, but God could will, you know, and this is what I talked about last time, that murder would be okay for you, but not okay for you at the same time. There's nothing in our nature that makes it immoral. All that makes it immoral is because it's against what God said. But in theory, at least, God could say something different. And there is no morality. God can do whatever he wants. And if God wanted to recreate the moral order, why not? There's no natural order in things. Why not God just recreate it? And thus, we're left with this position of theological, uh, theological voluntarism. <clears throat> Which would posit okay. that something is good simply because God wills it. Now, what happens then is we have our rational life that seems to point to things being good or bad, but ultimately, he says, cannot tell us anything about the nature of our actions. And our rational life that tells us a whole lot about how we ought to be, 
And you have to follow the Ten Commandments. You have to do a whole range of things. But what happens if something in what God says, or, or if, if, you, if, if you've eradicated reason entirely, but then reason seems to explain a lot without God. You're left with these two dual this duality okay, of truths that I seem to know rationally, and then truths that I, I, I just know as from God. And the danger here is you have the truths of reason, which can give us no conclusion about our morality, and the truths of faith that tell us a lot. And thus, faith and reason are not complementary, but totally different. And thus, what is to prevent someone, okay, if they're totally different, it seems like we either have to choose one or the other. Okay? Either choose faith or choose reason. And that is precisely what's happened. Okay? People like Marx in, in, the, in the 19th century chose reason and forgot faith. Individuals like, like Luther chose faith and discarded reason because there was no substantial bond between them. Whereas for a modern realist, you can see that there's a human nature and how we ought to act. And that God's law affirms the law of our nature that God also gave us. Although it tells us a little bit more. And we don't have to work as hard, you know? God just gives us the answers. We don't have to think it through. But if we did think it through, the two conclusions of faith and of reason would complement each other. Okay, and, that, and that's how things are done. Now, how this relates to what's in even this requirement is, is you know, what, what do you say? What makes you justified? Is that God says so. God says so. There's nothing in the nature of our actions, our internal conformity to the nature God gave us that makes us uh, living right and virtuous in God's eyes. But it's that God declares you justified. Regardless of the condition, in some sense, possibly of your soul. Maybe he declares it even before we're born, who is to be justified and who is not to be. And you can see kind of where this is going. Now, does that help tie things together from our last lecture a little bit? Pray to God, or did I just open a new can of worms? Oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Mark, you've got about three minutes to see. Okay, okay. So the whole second point will become the theme of our next lecture. Okay, yeah, yeah. Very good. And in the meantime, let's try to make sense of this, shall we? Okay, good. Okay, so, so again... The point I'm trying to make, I'm trying to point out, is if one makes our faith incompatible with reason, ultimately, not only does it undermine our faith, and what's interesting is even our faith affirms that philosophical knowledge of God is possible for what it's worth. Okay, in the first chapter of Romans. Okay. It says, uh, and this is quoting from St. Thomas, I think it's in the section of text I gave you uh, to look at that I was going to get into. Uh, but basically it's this, okay, it's Romans 1.20. Okay, here it is. The invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And so even our faith 
reveals to us that we can come to know reality. And that reality, in some ways, gives us some knowledge of God. Now, the knowledge of God that we have by, by, by theology exceeds the knowledge we have by philosophy. But it's complementary, and there are things known by faith, like the truth that God exists, like the truth of the moral life. They can be demonstrated not only by faith, but by reason. And this is a great tool for our evangelization. Okay. Because, okay. why? Because if we believe that reason is not contradictory to faith, and that it takes us pretty far towards the faith, then we can, without getting into the faith, walk someone to the door and open them to walking across the threshold. Okay. And this is exactly what I did, what happened to me in my own conversion. Okay. And this is something that I mentioned last time. I'll finish with this. Okay. Is this. You know, my, 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 my girlfriend okay, uh, said, as I was a high school senior, and I, I became a convert to Catholicism well over a decade ago when I was a, a college freshman. She said, is there anything that is morally true? After I was debating every kind of thing she was throwing at me. And I was like, well, I guess murder's wrong, I guess, you know? And, and then I'm like, well, shoot, what is morally wrong? You know, and what makes it morally wrong? And it got me pondering. And I looked at my nature, you know, and, and, I, and I discovered that, wow, there must be something in the natures of some actions that are in conformity to my nature. And then what is my nature? Okay, and, and I looked at it, and I came to certain philosophical conclusions about the way things are. And then I started hearing the faith. And I said, wow, this is affirming what I know by nature. And it's taking me beyond. Okay, and that's what our faith does. But I think the theme here for us to take, and how this is going to relate to next lecture, is that when reason is divorced from faith, and you can see this in Martin Luther very clearly by saying this theological volunteers, that morality, by way of reason, cannot prove anything. And it's only by way of faith that we can know anything. And therefore, he's divorced these two ways of man knowing truth. And they have failed to be complementary, but have become isolated. And, and gosh, there's so much more I want to say. I'm trying to kind of give it in a digestible chunk. So, 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 uh, so hopefully that, that, that's a start. Okay? Now I might tie this together once more. Uh, at the beginning of our next meeting, that's fine. And then I'm going to go into a very novel thing that I think you'll really enjoy, which I was hoping to get to tonight, but I was unable to do to certain reasons. But hopefully some of this is beginning. It's, it's, it's kind of like philosophy is like painting a fence. You know what it's like? You paint a fence, and you put on one layer. Okay, It's not like building a wall with bricks. Because intellectually, what happens is you put, you put one brick down, okay, and then you come back to get the next brick from the next lecture Professor Wunsch is going to talk about, and the other brick is gone. <laughs> what happened? What happened? Our, our memories are fallible, for one, right? Okay, but it's like painting a fence. You put on one coat, and then you put on a second coat. And eventually it starts sticking and it starts looking good. That's what we're doing. I'll see you next time. <laughs>
expressions of ideas. Good question. Good question. Because it can get confused. A lot of times when I hear Catholics talking, they talk like Protestants, and I'm not sure that they're okay. So, so the question, the question that the gentleman asked is, how much has the church? has the church in the modern world been influenced by Luther's ideas right, and, and modes of expression? And the answer is, in a sense, the church since the 16th century has been influenced profoundly by Luther insofar as the Catholic Church in the 16th century had to define itself in opposition to Luther. Right? One of the interesting things about uh, say the history of, of church councils throughout the entire history of, of Christianity is that church councils, when they're called, at least when they're called by sane people, they're usually called to address theological error. So that they're called, in other words, to define church doctrine in opposition to a prevalent error. And you can go back to the ancient church. This is the pattern. Nicaea was called to deal with Arianism. The First Council of Constantinople also dealt with Arianism. Ephesus dealt with Nestorianism. Chalcedon dealt with Monophysitism. Right? Every council in the early church deals, in one way or another, with some prevalent error. The, the church doesn't just call a council for the heck of it. Right. So that's why we get the Council of Trent later in the 16th century. The Council of Trent is called to define Catholic doctrine specifically in opposition to what's been proposed by the Reformers. Right? Just to make it clear what the, what the Catholic faith is, that the one holy Catholic and apostolic church in opposition to the, the novel innovations of the Reformers. So that's how the, the fathers of Trent would have seen the Reformation. So in essence, the, the influence of Luther is profound insofar as the church is required, beginning in the 16th century, to define itself in opposition to Luther and to deal with issues that it never would really have had to deal with if, if Luther and the Reformation had never happened. Right. So even the church coming to deal with justification the way that it does after the 16th century, coming to deal with the sacraments theologically the way that it does after the 16th century, never would have had to occur if the church were not obliged to define itself in opposition to Luther. Now, the phenomenon that you're talking about, I think, where Catholics today are talking like Protestants, I don't think that's because the Catholic Church is influenced in a direct way by Luther. I think it's because believing Catholics who care about the faith and who care about Christ in this day and age don't necessarily always know where to, where to turn. Right? They find themselves subscribing to Protestant magazines, listening to Protestant radio, watching Protestant t evangelists on TV, and I think that's where some of that comes from, a much more recent phenomenon. Where should they go then? Well, <laughs> go to Holy Transfiguration. <laughs> You, you should go hear Father Mitch Pockler, right? Don't, don't forget yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Given what St. John of the Cross said about dark night of the soul, and given uh, the experiences of St. Teresa of the Holy Child and Mother Teresa of Calcutta, can we say, therefore, that Martin Luther uh, had possibly a dark night of the soul and that he failed, unlike the other ones who succeeded? I don't know. I don't know because the thing is that a dark night of the soul, the way it's defined by St. John of the Cross, it's kind of a profound mystical experience um, where a, a, a very advanced soul is deprived of sensible consolation. Right, whereas with Luther in his early years, it would be hard to say that he was a very advanced soul being deprived of sensible uh, consolation. It's more like a man who's, who's warped and, and you know, frustrated in many ways, and, and that's what's depriving him of the ability to experience the sensible consolations of God. It's not so much that God has withdrawn himself from Luther because he knows Luther can handle it, and that's what is going on with John of the Cross and, and Mother Teresa and all that. So I, I think there's a distinction. 
Yes, a lot of the current history will see the blame the Reformation all on the Catholic Church sale sure. indulgences. How unfair or how fair is that presumption? It seems like it's unfair in my opinion. Right. Well, it, it's a good question. It's a good question. I wanted to get into the sale of indulgences, but I didn't really have time in this lecture. Let, let's look at it this way. You have to understand what an indulgence is. An indulgence is something that evolves really out of the crusading movement in the Christian West. Um, right? the, the idea is this. Look, an indulgence is something that originally in antiquity and in the early medieval church in the West is associated with pilgrimage. Right, if you go on pilgrimage, particularly if you go on pilgrimage to the Middle East, it's something that's so arduous that it's the kind of penance that can uh, can make up for any penance. Right, it, no matter what sin you've committed, if you've gone to confession, the maximum penance, you know, the, the, the kind of quintessential penance, is to go on a very arduous, dangerous pilgrimage to the Middle East, right, and, and visit the Holy Sepulchre, visit the Holy Relics. Right, so so it's a penance that can make up for. Uh, the temporal punishment that's due to your sins in, in really a unique and powerful way, right? In a very embryonic way, that's how that's seen. Now, at the time of the Crusades, the idea of you know a pilgrimage as, as being particularly redemptive, it, it's elevated even further, right? Pope Urban II, for the first time, enunciates very clearly those who go to the Holy Sepulchre to deliver the Holy Sepulchre from the Turks, right, will receive the indulgence that's traditionally associated with pilgrimage to the Holy Sepulchre. Now, as the crusading movement evolves, right, popes later in the 13th century begin to argue that by their authority, right, they have the authority to extend the pilgrim's indulgence to those who are unable to go on pilgrimage, but who support uh, the crusading movement in other ways. So for example, if you're some kind of invalid and you can't go to the Holy Sepulchre, you can't go to try to liberate the Holy Sepulchre from the Muslims, right? but you can say, donate the money to arm Chris and send him on crusade. Right? Then in some sense, those spiritual you can share in those spiritual benefits. Right, so the popes, by their apostolic authority, begin to, and I'm giving a very kind of, you know, very, very simplified, you know, Reader's Digest version of this. But eventually, the indulgence is something that the popes argue it's within their spiritual competence, it's within the spiritual authority of the Bishop of Rome to, in fact, um, attach indulgences to various kinds of actions. Right, to say, okay, maybe instead of going on pilgrimage to the Holy Sepulchre, if, if that's if that's not possible, maybe you can make a pilgrimage somewhere else or do some kind of other pious action and receive the same kind of spiritual benefits in your soul. Now, um, is, it, is it a spiritual benefit? Or let's put it this way. Is it a pious action to, um, you know, to adorn the house of God suitably for the worship of God? Right? Say, you know, should the house of God be adorned appropriately? Should it? Sure. But that costs money. Right? So if you have the means at your disposal and you donate to make that happen, right, is that a spiritual act? Is that a pious act for which the reward of a spiritual benefit can be legitimately given? Now, the papacy in the early modern period, in, in the 15th and 16th centuries, would have said, sure. You know, in fact, so as the popes are trying to build the new St. Peter's Basilica in Rome in the early 16th century, popes like Leo X were saying, yeah, if you donate money to the building of St. Peter's, you know, in fact, this is something, it's a holy act, it's a pious act, right? And, and something that you can legitimately receive spiritual benefits for. Now, implicit in this is the idea that the church has the authority from Christ 
to to declare that that one has received a spiritual benefit for doing a pious action. In other words, the, the church has some kind of jurisdictional authority to say this kind of act will yield a certain spiritual effect in the soul of one who's rightly disposed to receive it. Right. So there's an assumption about the authority of the church that implicitly kind of underlies the theology of indulgences in the early modern period. Now, what Luther argues is that what you're effectively doing by giving indulgences to people who donate to the building of St. Peter's, what you're effectively doing is selling the indulgences. And that's simony. When I say simony, that's a term you're familiar with, right? Simony means the, the selling of spiritual goods. Right? In other words, if you come to me and say, I'm a bishop, right? and you say, I want to be a priest, and I say, okay, that'll be 50 bucks. <laughs> that's simony, right? I'm, I'm selling a spiritual benefit. What if you come and you say, I want absolution for my sins? And I, well, that's 100 bucks, man. Yeah, that's, <laughs> there you go. You know, that, that's, that's simony. Now, it can be borderline, right? If, if, if this gentleman comes to me here and, and says, I want absolution for my sins, and here are my sins, and he tells me his sins, and I say, wow, those are some pretty grave sins. I know you're a man of some means, <laughs> I know you're a man of some wealth. Um, for your penance, right, why don't you put some of your wealth at the disposal of the church? Why don't you c commit some of your wealth to the cause of, of God and of holy things, right? Now, that's borderline, right? Because on the one hand, you could argue that it's simony. You could argue that I'm selling him absolution. On the other hand, you could argue that, no, I'm, I'm telling him to do something pious and holy for his penance. Right? And I think the, the selling of indulgences, as it were, in the early modern period, it, it's that borderline thing of the church saying, okay, those who donate for some what is a holy cause, the building of a great basilica, shall receive a spiritual benefit. Uh, and, and people like Luther would attack this and say, no, you're selling spiritual benefits. But, but here's the thing. Luther goes further than that. He doesn't just say, that's simony, and you shouldn't do it. What he says is that the church has no authority to give spiritual benefits, that the church has no authority to even give indulgences. That the church, and in effect, he ends up going further, to, even to the point of saying the church has no authority to give absolution or to, you know, to... To you know, the church has no authority to. And on this point, it relates to something I was going to say. Yeah. And because I'm afraid no one's going to ask the poor philosopher any questions. <laughs> I'm trying to relate this. Now, now it, it would be tied together better if you'd heard the second part of my lecture. <laughs> but, 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 okay, if everything is God, okay, and, and in some ways God is everything, and everything is true to God, and you know, moral truth is from God, it's not from our study of reality, and ultimately, as, as we'll discuss later, even our human actions from God, and everything is of God, how can you trust God to work through any human authority? Okay? Is any human authority, is, is, by the very fact that there is a human authority, isn't it advocating or taking something away from God? Okay? And, and it's in some of these texts. That's exactly what they say. Okay? Uh, these texts that I gave last time. Okay? Martin Luther. The sum is that man cannot be claimed with a single particle of righteousness to himself without at the same time detracting from the glory of the divine righteousness. In other words, if there is any priest, any sacraments, any things man, uh, human authority is doing, somehow that will be subtracted from God. Now, how do you bind these two together? 
how can you say that it doesn't subtract from God, but it, it is simply God working and man working simultaneously but in different ways? You need a balanced view of an integrated view of faith and reason, and you need to come to the next lecture. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>